0: Good morning. The reading today is Romans 8:18 8, through 25. Yet we suffer now as nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. This is the word of our Lord. my son i have nothing i can give but this chance that you Baby be still love, don't cry.
1: Hey everybody welcome to hope my name is scott reigns i'm one of the pastors here i hope you had just an awesome spring break i hope your march madness brackets look a whole lot better than mine i'm hoping tyrese hunter makes 10 three-pointers today and i hope that you are ready for us to continue our lenten journey this is the third weekend of lent that means that three weekends from now it will be palm sunday weekend and that's the beginning of holy week Uh, The week that we remember the death of Jesus, the week we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it's this reminder every year, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that delivers us from the biggest enemies we face in life. Uh, The death and resurrection of Jesus delivers us to a promised land that we call eternity. And we're going to dig into that today. Uh, the clip we just watched is the beginning of a movie called The Prince of Egypt. It came out in 1998. If you are parents of young children and you're trying to figure out what's the uh, fun way to help my kids engage with the biblical narrative, I would suggest over the rest of the season of Lent, how about you read through the first, I don't know, 15, 16 chapters of the book of Exodus. Read that with your kids. Watch this movie uh, as part of a family movie night, and I think it'll raise some fun questions for you to uh, talk to your kids about and engage in the biblical story. Deliver us. It's the cry of the people of God in the land of Egypt some 4,000 years ago. Deliver us is also the cry of a lot of people today. We've got a Lenten mission project every year we do. This year, it's Hope for Ukraine. And you've heard us talk about this over the last three weeks. We're asking you to please uh, prayerfully consider uh, acting making a financial contribution to our mission partner, Convoy of Hope. They're on the ground in Poland, where they are delivering uh, life-saving supplies to all kinds of people who've been displaced by uh, violence and war. Uh, we're asking you to act. You can. There's buckets around uh, the uh, church that have this uh, logo, Hope for Ukraine, on them. You can put cash or checks in that. You can give uh, online. Uh, we're also asking you to act in other ways, like by praying. I think it's important for us to remember this is a a powerful way for us to act. When we pray and we ask God to act on our behalf. I think sometimes uh, we hear a lot these days, thoughts and prayers don't matter. Um, That's discounting the power of prayer. Uh, God has done it before. God has delivered people before from violent oppression. And we're asking God to do it again. We're asking God to do it for the people of Ukraine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, But we're also asking God to do this anywhere in this world where people are suffering in any kind of way. Uh, Our mission project is Ukraine, but it wasn't supposed to be uh, Ukraine originally. We were planning to support Inlase, one of our mission partners, uh, doing good work in El Salvador. Eli, one of our staff members, is going to be leading a a mission trip to El Salvador this summer. If you'd be interested in being a part of that, you can go uh, to the website and read about that trip or talk to Eli, and he'd be happy to tell you what that trip is all about. Uh, shortly into the season of Lent, we had that tornado uh, that caused all kinds of devastation in southern Iowa. It caused a lot of people to be crying out for deliverance. Two days after the tornado, we had gun violence on school grounds in central Iowa. Uh, our prayer list here at Hope Ankeny is as long as I remember it ever being. Many people experiencing all kinds of hurts and trials and problems and obstacles and suffering, crying out for deliverance. Deliver us. It's not just the cry of a people in the Old Testament 4,000 years ago. Deliver us is kind of the cry of the common cry of humanity. Uh, What hope is there for people who cry out to God for deliverance? Well, uh, the book of Exodus gives us some clues. First two chapters of that book, it tells the story. uh, The people are in bondage uh, in Egypt And one of the ways that the Egyptians oppressed the Hebrew people, they passed a law at one point. Anytime a baby boy was born to the Hebrews, that baby uh, immediately needed to be killed. And so Moses, when he was born, his parents wanted to protect him. Uh, They hide him in a basket. They send him down the Nile River where he is uh, discovered. That basket is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses ends up being raised in the palace as a prince of Egypt. And by the time he gets to be about 40 years old... He knows who he is, he knows he's not really Egyptian, he's Hebrew, and he sees the mistreatment of his people and he he wants to do something about it, he doesn't quite know what to do, he ends up accidentally killing one of the Egyptian soldiers. And so Moses flees from Egypt to the wilderness country of Midian, he's hiding there protecting his life. And then I want us to read together how uh, Exodus chapter 2 ends, it's on the screen, read this out loud with me. The Israelites continued to groan. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. What hope is there for people who are crying out to God for deliverance? Here's part of our hope God hears your cry. God hears your groaning. Whatever trial, whatever problem, hardship, suffering you're going through, when you cry out to God, our God is a God who hears us but wait, there's more. Here's the next verse. God looked down on the people of Israel and God knew it was time to act. Never forget this church. Our God is a God of action. Our God is a God who acts on our behalf. And one of the more challenging parts of being people of faith is trusting that God is going to act while we're waiting for God to act. God is a God who acts, but God always acts according to God's timeline, which is often very different from our timeline. God is a God who acts, and God chooses to act the way God wants to act, which is often very different from how we would like God to act. So God hears their groaning. God hears it's time to act. Uh, how long had the people been crying out for deliverance by the time we get to the end of Exodus chapter 2? 400 years. 400 years. Uh, why did it take God 400 years to know now it's the time to act? This is really challenging for people of faith. How, how do we trust? How do we keep crying out for deliverance in a faithful way while we're waiting for God to act? So how does God end up acting on behalf of the Israelites to save them? Well, he goes to Midian. And Moses has an encounter with God through the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I want you to go back, you're gonna be my mouthpiece for this deliverance. I want you to go to your brother who's now the Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Take a look.
0: It's Moses. Ah. Moses! So, Moses, how does it feel when you get struck to the ground? I didn't mean to, to cause you more pain. I'm just trying to do as God told me. God? When did God start caring about any of
1: us? In fact, Moses, when did you start caring about slaves? Was it when you found out that you were
0: one of us? Don't listen to him. No, he's, he's right. I did not see because I did not wish to see. Or oh, you did see because you didn't wish to see? Ah!
1: Well, that makes everything fine, then doesn't it?
0: Aaron, (coughs) you shame yourself. Miriam. I'm so sorry. (sighs) Moses, hear what I say. I have been a slave all my life and God has never answered my prayers until now God saved you from the river he saved you in all your wanderings and even now he saves you from the wrath of Pharaoh God will not abandon you so don't you abandon us
1: going? Keep ignoring us. Enough. I will hear no more of this Hebrew nonsense. Bring him to me.
0: Moses! No! Take the staff in your hand, Moses.
1: the superior might of our
0: gods. Uh, By the power of Ra!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Abandon this futile mission, Moses. I've indulged you long enough. This must now be finished.
0: No, Rameses, it is only beginning. But
1: Moses, didn't you see what happened?
0: The priests did the same thing.
1: Pharaoh still has the power over our lives.
0: Yes, Aaron, it's true, Pharaoh has the power. He can take away your food, your home, your freedom. He can take away your sons and daughters. With one word, Pharaoh can take away your very lives. But there is one thing he cannot take away from you, your faith. Believe, for we will see God's wonders.
1: You should read the Bible. There's some really cool stuff in there. I want you to notice um, how does God choose to deliver God's people? God doesn't send an army with Moses to deliver the people. Well, to clarify, God doesn't send a military army. God sends an army of gnats and boils and flies and locusts and all plague after plague after plague. And eventually, This is how God brings about deliverance for God's people. This is the central story of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, notice God does not send a military army with Jesus to deliver the people from the oppressive Roman Empire. Instead, Jesus, God's son, willingly chooses to endure suffering so that we can be delivered from suffering. This gets us to our Bible reading for today from uh, Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to uh, Romans chapter 8. We'll be hanging out here for the, the rest of the message. Uh, sometimes people ask me, you know, there, there's all sorts of ways, helpful and good ways for us to engage with, with God's Word. Uh, sometimes we do it as individuals sometimes we do it as part of a group we just finished a class called group launch and several new uh, small groups started Uh, maybe you're in a small group maybe you want to be in a small group uh, maybe your small group stopped meeting over COVID and it's time to uh, start meeting again Uh, sometimes people ask me what's what should we read what should we be studying Uh, or what should I be studying I think the book of Romans would be a great uh, topic for you to just tackle for a while it's a book that's super helpful connecting what God is up to in the Old Testament through uh, Moses and the Exodus and what God is up to in the New Testament through uh, Jesus and the cross. Uh, all kinds of helpful ways to engage in Scripture. We've got a, a bunch of people in this church who are on a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year tract. So every day there's a, a portion of Scripture that they read, and by the end of the year they've read the entire Bible from uh, cover to cover, and it's helpful sometimes to just get that whole context in a real short amount of time. Uh, other times it's really helpful to just take a short passage of Scripture, like one chapter, and just kind of let that chapter marinate uh, for a while. Romans chapter 8 would be one of those chapters. You could, you could hang out in Romans chapter 8 for months, and God would be teaching you something new uh, day after day after day. Uh, so here's how Romans chapter 8 begins. Let's read this out loud together. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Jesus. And I want to just pause there for a second and let that sink in. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. I'm guessing there are plenty of people in this room who uh, read that verse, and it's pretty difficult for you to believe. Because every time you make a mistake, you say the wrong thing, you you do the wrong thing, you, you make a mess relationally, or you fail in some way, as soon as you do that, there is a voice in your head, an inner critic, if you will, that just starts to berate you and belittle you, you're pathetic, you're dirty, you're unworthy. I want you to know that that voice is not God's voice. Others of you have a voice of condemnation that it's not internal, it's the people in your life. Sometimes it's people in your own family or some of your close friends. They're waiting for you to make a mistake and they just pounce and they put you down as soon as you, they condemn you whenever you make a mistake. Again, I want you to know that voice of condemnation is not the voice of God. Now, this is not me saying we never make mistakes. Of course we do. We often say the wrong thing and and do the wrong thing. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, and when we do, God wants to help us. God wants to lift us up. God wants to show us a better way. God wants to show us a better life. But God does not help us by condemning us. God helps us by convicting us. There's a real big, important difference between a voice of condemnation and a voice of conviction. Uh, A voice of condemnation always uh, carries with it this tone of accusation And judgment and shame, a voice of condemnation leaves us alone in our mess, leaves us alone in our failures. A voice of conviction is very different. It's always motivated by love. A voice of condemnation pushes us down. A voice of conviction pulls us up. It's all about helping us. Uh, Change is possible. Transformation is possible. Conviction always reminds us we're never alone in our failures. Uh, That clip we just watched... uh, The way Aaron, Moses' brother, treats him is kind of with that voice of condemnation. Miriam, his sister, has the voice of conviction. She gets into the mud hole with him. She lifts him up. She reminds him God is with him. God is not going to abandon him. Not because he's perfect. He's made plenty of mistakes. But change is possible. Growth is possible. Why is it important for us to understand the difference between that voice of condemnation and that voice of conviction? It has everything to do with our response to suffering. It has everything to do with our response to suffering. Uh, When I don't know the difference between a voice of condemnation and conviction, and I experience suffering in my life, it's really easy for me to come to the conclusion I am suffering because God is condemning me, God is punishing me for some failure in my life. You get a scary medical diagnosis. Uh, you're pursuing a job and you don't get the job you want. You don't get the promotion you want. Uh, a relationship fails. Your favorite college basketball team gets upset in the first round of March Madness and you start to think, this is God punishing me for my bad behavior. And we laugh, but we, you know we do this in all sorts of ways. And part of what's going on here at the beginning of Romans 8, Paul is reminding us that this is not who God is. This is not how God works. God's voice is not a voice of condemnation. It's a voice of conviction and and hope and change. And as you continue to read through Romans 8, Paul reminds us that we have been delivered. We have been set free from sin and death. Not because we perfectly follow the law of Moses, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's given to us by Jesus after Jesus' death and, and resurrection. And part of the power of the Holy Spirit is to be this voice in our lives that reminds us who we really are. We are children of God. And when we are I don't know, assured of that identity that we are God's children, part of what Paul says in the middle of Romans 8 is if you're children, part of what that means is you have an inheritance. You are heirs of God's glory because you're children of God. Your inheritance is God's glory. But what in the world does that mean? Let's see if we can figure it out. Uh, Luke chapter 24 tells us the story of the first Easter Sunday. So the beginning of Luke chapter 24, the women go to the tomb. The stone's been rolled away. uh, Jesus' body isn't there. The tomb tomb is empty. They run and tell the disciples who come and look. They discover the empty tomb. And nobody knows what to make of this because nobody was expecting the resurrection. And so the word starts to spread throughout Jerusalem. The tomb's empty. Jesus' body isn't there. What are we supposed to make of this? That's the first half of the first Easter Sunday in Luke 24. The second half is the road to Emmaus. So there's a village just outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. There are a couple of followers of Jesus who've been in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, just like Jesus and his disciples were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now the Passover's over, they're going back to Emmaus, but they have heard this news, this rumor about the empty tomb, they're talking about it, they're trying to make sense of it, when Jesus joins them on the road to Emmaus. And I want us to read together part of what Jesus says to them, uh, Luke 24, 26, it's on the screen, read it out loud with me. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Jesus is like, you know the scriptures? You know the story. You know what the prophets uh, talk about. The Messiah is going to come, and the Messiah is going to suffer, and then the Messiah is going to enter his glory. So when Jesus talks about glory after his resurrection, part of what he's talking about is heaven, resurrection, eternal life, first suffering, then glory. Go back to uh, Romans 8. We're heirs of God's glory. We're heirs of eternal life we're heirs of the resurrection and paul keeps going and says this if we're to share in his glory we must also share in his suffering yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later first suffering then glory it's true for the messiah and it's true for people who believe jesus is the messiah first suffering then glory Uh, That kind of lands like the punchline of a bad joke. That kind of make you want to groan. First suffering, then glory. We've got questions about that. We don't particularly like that. And we should have questions about that. And Paul spends the rest of Romans chapter 8 talking about groaning. So I want us to practice groaning a little bit this morning. This is the audience participation part of the sermon. I'm going to count to three and you give me your best groan. Are you ready? One, two, three. Yeah, we need more practice. So I've got uh, five jokes, and I'm gonna th- they're really bad jokes I'm in short, so we're going to go through these five jokes, and at the end of them, I need you to groan. Can we do this? Okay. Here's joke number one. Yesterday, a clown held a door open for me. I thought it was a nice jester. <laughs> yeah, you're getting the hang of it. Keep going. Joke number two. Thieves have stolen 20 crates of Red Bull from the local supermarket. I don't know how these people sleep at night. You're laughing at my bad jokes. Uh, joke number three. If you want a job in the moisturizer industry, the best advice I can give is apply daily. Yes, that's a real groaner. Next one. Uh, I have a pet newt. His name is Tiny. You know why he's named Tiny? Because he's my newt. Yeah, you laughed again. Oh, you're supposed to groan. OK, one, final one, final one. First suffering, then glory. Ugh, it's just awful. What, what are we supposed to do with this? If this is reality, how do we live our lives faithfully in light of this reality? There's a professor at Luther Seminary up in St. Paul. His name is David Fredrickson. He is an expert in Greco-Roman culture and society. Uh, He's written an article called, Paul, Hardships and Suffering. You can Google it and find it online if you'd like to read through it, which you won't like to do, but I'll try to summarize it for us. as an expert in Greco-Roman culture and society, part of what Dr. Fredrickson reminds us when we're reading through the Bible, it's important to first remember w- what was the context into which this was written. Uh, how would they have been thinking about things? How would they have received this word? And, and so for example, if I talk about March Madness with you, most of you know we're talking about college basketball. But if I talked about March Madness in a different culture, if in, El Salvador or in Ukraine. They might not have, if I talked about March Madness in first century Rome, go over, they'd have no idea what I was talking about. Similarly, people who lived in first century Rome understand words and phrases in ways that go right over our heads because we're not part of that culture and society. So, part of the work, the academic work that Dr. Fredrickson does. There are categories of people in first century Rome, and a couple of categories are groaners, that's one of the categories. Conquerors is another category. And this has everything to do with with Romans chapter 8. Hang with me, and we'll get there. So in the ancient world, they believed, here's the reality of our world. It's a cold place, a hard place, an impersonal place. The best way, the best strategy for surviving in that kind of a world is develop a me-first Uh, look out for number one approach to life. They believed it was a waste of time to hope for a deliverer. Hope that there's somebody who has the power to change things. That's a waste of time. Instead, the wisdom of Paul's day was to encourage people to uh, use your reason, use your strength to be able to rise above the inevitable sufferings of life. Yes, we're all going to suffer. uh, But don't hope for a deliverer. Instead, figure out yourself how to rise above it all. And Paul writes the book of Romans to kind of give an alternative to that conventional wisdom of his day. Uh, Everyone's going to suffer. Paul agrees with that. The the Romans and the Greeks agreed with that. The worst thing is if you had to suffer alone. And so Aristotle uh, Aristotle says suffering is lightened by the sympathy of a friend. Misery loves company. Uh, They valued nobility in the ancient world. So they wanted people to do noble acts. Uh, If you would sacrifice for a friend, maybe even sacrifice your life for a friend, that was a noble gesture. Cicero writes about going to the theater. And anytime there's a, a, a scene in a play where this sort of thing happens, somebody sacrifices themselves for the sake of a friend, the audience would weep, and then the audience would stand to their feet and cheer and applaud. This move, Because like Jesus, they believe there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend. But for the Greeks and Romans, there were limits to the virtue of sacrifice. Limits to the virtue of sacrifice. In, in other words, if you're going to sacrifice yourself for someone else, that someone else better be deserving of your sacrifice. Think of the end of Saving Private Ryan when uh, Tom Hanks' character says to Matt Damon's character, earn this. That's how the Greeks and Romans, believed. if someone's going to sacrifice for you, you better be a virtuous person. You better be worthy and deserving of that sacrifice. The second limit they had around a sacrifice was if you're going to sacrifice for someone who is suffering, if you're going to sympathize with them, if you're going to help them, you have to remain unaffected by the suffering around you. The suffering in other people's life, the suffering in your own life, you can't allow that to disturb your inner peace. You can't allow the suffering to make you groan. Groaning is a sign of weakness. Groaning is a sign of you just don't have what it takes. You can't deal. You can't handle what's going on in the world. Instead, they they wanted people to become masters of their spirit, master uh, your inner life in such a way that you always are able to maintain your inner peace, and they had a word for that. They called that a conqueror. We don't want to be groaners. We want to be conquerors. Here's what Seneca writes. When will it be our privilege to utter the words I have conquered? Do you ask me whom I have conquered? Neither the Persians nor the far-off Medes. Seneca's not a general. He's not a warrior, military guy. He's a philosopher. He's not talking about conquering external enemies. He's talking about internal enemies like greed, ambition, fear of death, All these things that could disturb me internally that has conquered the conquerors. He's like, even the mightiest of warriors, most of the time what takes them out is not the sword of an enemy, what takes them out is some inner failing. And so the idea is to become so self-sufficient, so self-reliant, that no matter what circumstance you face, you, you remain internally unfazed by it. The world is still unredeemed. There's still pain and suffering in the world. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, but you, you don't care. It doesn't phase you. You are a conqueror. All right. I I understand it's the last day of spring break and all sorts of things going on and you're all groaning about what you have to go back to tomorrow. But if you can hang with me for the next 10 minutes, I think there's going to be a payoff that you're going to be glad you stayed awake for. So, are you with me? 10 more minutes we can do this. The motto of the ancient world is no groaners allowed. No good man ever groans, Epictetus says. Groaning is a sign of weakness, Plutarch says. It is a disgrace to groan, Cicero says. This is the context, the cultural context into which Paul writes the book of Romans. And what does Paul say? Verse 22, we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Creation is suffering. Creation is groaning. Now think about it. You love creation. I've seen all your pictures of spring break, the beach and the sunsets and the mountains, and we love the changing seasons. Think about how much joy creation brings us, and it's groaning. Think about what is creation going to be like when it enters God's glory, I'd kind of like to see that, wouldn't you? While we wait for that, in the meantime, creation groans first, suffering, then glory. Not only does creation groan; Paul goes on in verse twenty-three. We believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long to see our body; we long for our bodies to be released, to be uh, delivered from sin and suffering conventional wisdom of Paul's day he's turning it on its head we don't want to be groaners we want to be conquerors Paul says yeah I'm a groaner and I'm not ashamed of it creation groans Paul groans the church groans believers groan and then in this astonishing statement Paul writes this in verse 26 the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words in other words God groans Jesus groans because there is a life that is full and abundant and you and I miss so much of it. So Jesus groans. God suffers with us. He hears our groaning and enters our groaning and suffers with us. First the suffering, then the glory. There's an interesting passage. It's fairly well-known a couple chapters earlier in Romans chapter 5. I'll start in verse 3. Paul says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. We can rejoice when we suffer. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Remember, the Greeks and the Romans said, it's foolish, it's a waste of time to hope for deliverance. We hope and we hope and we hope and we hope and nothing ever changes. Hope always leads to disappointment. Paul says, no, it doesn't. Look what he says in verse 5. This hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Jesus goes to the cross, he groans for us, and then he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can be reminded on a moment-to-moment basis how much we are loved, no matter what we are going through. I mean, look what Paul writes in verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. It it was not considered a virtuous act to die for unvirtuous people in Paul's day. And yet Paul says, yeah, let's rethink that. The God of the Christians is a God who shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners when your life was a mess when that inner voice of condemnation had convinced you you were unworthy you were undeserving you were unlovable the best man who ever lived jesus christ died for you why does hope not disappoint it's not because we become so expert at hoping I've become such a a great hoper that now things turn out exactly the way I want them to in this life. No, that's not why hope doesn't disappoint. It's not because I have uh, mastered my emotions. I've conquered them. And now no matter what's going on in my life, it doesn't matter. It doesn't faze me. I'm a conqueror. No, I'll tell you why hope doesn't disappoint. It's because Jesus Christ, in an act of complete grace for people as sin-soaked and sin-damaged and sin-stained as you and me, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus suffered willingly. He groaned and he died for people like you. And church, if we could ever wrap our hearts and minds around the fullness of that reality, we would be on our feet cheering like we've never cheered for anything before in our life because that's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of what it means is therefore, therefore, no matter what you are going through in life, no matter what hardship, no matter what hurt, no matter what frustration, no matter how you might be experiencing, no matter what it is that's causing you to cry out, deliver me. You don't have to worry. You can trust. You can know there is a God who loves you. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Paul says, does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. It's actually one of the places where the New Living Translation is not the best translation, the most helpful translation. Pretty much every other English translation from a New Testament Greek into English, instead of overwhelming victory, they use the phrase, more than conquerors. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever is hard, uh, whatever is causing you to suffer, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Do you see what Paul is doing here? It's not just some nice flowery language. This is very precise and intentional language. Highest value in Paul's day. Be a conqueror. Be someone that no matter what's going on. You you can look at images of war and the atrocities of war and you're unfazed by it. It doesn't move you. Natural disasters can cause all kind of of pain and suffering. and I'm unfazed by it. The people closest to me, they can uh, get illness and disease they can suffer they can die and it's not going to phase me i'm a conqueror and paul says yeah there's something better than that you're more than conquerors you are people of hope and your hope is in a god who loves you enough to give you a glorious inheritance yeah you're going to groan a lot in this life but that groaning is nothing compared to the glory that awaits you like paul i am absolutely convinced nothing can separate us from god's love Neither life nor death, neither angels or demons, neither uh, powers of hell, indeed nothing in all creation, going to be able to separate us from God's love for us, which is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because we're more than conquerors. We are people of hope, and hope has a name.